the height of British pop and psychedelia. It's the time of the season. The zombies with Odyssey and Oracle. Good morning to you. They were in the studio recording this 54 years ago this week. It's crazy, really. When we started out, everybody, I mean, including John Lennon, thought that things had a life of about three years, and that was it. Um, and he said, I don't want to be doing this when I'm 30, you know? <laughs> and, and it just, just felt crazy. I know that people thought that a song, I mean, the, almost the very first song I ever wrote was She's Not There. I honestly thought after a couple of years, no one would ever hear it again. And, and in common with a lot of people from around that time, this stuff has lasted longer than any form of popular music before. It's just crazy. On this week's show, how the zombies are revisiting their legacy. Well, no one told me about her, the way she lied. So we've got a real history with Abbey Road, but we were so knocked out that they really uh, wanted us to do this. They asked us to do this live concert. And it, it's a bit scary because we haven't actually, we won't have played for 16 months when we actually, when we actually turn up, you know, for the date. So we're, we're trying to organize a couple of rehearsals at the moment, aren't we? Absolutely. The last time we played was in Spain in December 2019. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I hope I recognise the rest of the band when we get together. <laughs> you probably won't now, Cole. No. <laughs> Hi, Rod Argent here from The Zombies, and you're listening to... Oh, fuck. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, let me go. Let me go, Rod. This is Colin Blundstone from The Zombies, and you're listening to Dave and Shane from Rock of Nations. Yes! <laughs> Hi everybody, this is Don Halford. Rudy Sosa. Hey there, this is Steve Hackett. You folks are just Rick Emmett of Triumph, and we're talking rock with Dave and Shane. Hey! It's the time of the season. And there it is, there is that song that's in the ether everywhere. Time of the season, the zombies. I, I mean, this is a song that defines the 60s. Is that right, Brother Shane? Two movies, Yeah, I've heard it. There was a remix version of it, yep. I heard, and, and a regular version. It, it's great, I, I love the fact that there's a resurgence to this record. Right. And they're kind of getting um, the attention that they deserve yeah. all along. Yeah, they are, and um, it's it's great to have these guys not only back on, but you know, there's a big reason for it. The Zombies are returning to Abbey Road Studios for a huge night. Studio World, Two, yeah, Studio Two <laughs> World Tour in one night live stream event. This is from Abbey Road, AbbeyRoad.com. Uh, the 2019 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, the Zombies, will present their first and only worldwide streaming event on this date, uh, September 18th, or as they say, 18 September yeah. uh, 2021. <laughs> um, the iconic British pop pioneers will perform a career-spanning concert 
as you said, Studio Two, yep. uh, returning five decades later to the hallowed space where they recorded their seminal album, Odyssey and Oracle, from 1967. Man, uh, this is so cool. And so we had, you know, Rod Argent and, of course, Colin Blundstone on the show. And these guys are just, they, they were so excited uh, for this moment um, to be doing what they're doing all this time later. And after our interview, I had to watch the, whole, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame show. Yeah. And it was phenomenal when they did that song. Everybody was into it. You know, there's Cheryl Crow and uh, uh, Stevie Nicks were sitting at the table doing the part, you know, <laughs> for the song. Yeah. And it was kind of cool because I never saw them actually do it. I just heard, it, heard the track, you know. The, the really interesting thing about this and the, the kind of the why I threw Studio 2 in there is yeah. because in the podcast that, that you're going to hear, we talked a lot about this this whole studio experience yeah. and who else was recording at the same time they were and a whole bunch of other stuff and why they were pretty much relegated to Studio 2 in the first place. Yeah. It's a very interesting story. A lot of you zombie hardcore fans are going to know all this stuff. Yeah. There's just some really nice tales in there from Rod yeah. and Colin that just blew me away. Oh I, my god. I was sitting there yeah. with my mouth open just yeah. listening to some of the stuff that they were talking about. and The access they had, the, the, ri the rigid, very strict scheduling. You know, you could record at this time, not at that time. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, when they were done, they were done. Right. It's not like today, oh, yeah, we're going to keep going. Into, no, you're done after three <laughs> hours, you're done. You know, it's just, it's it's amazing. And, uh, and you know, British pop, what's interesting, too, is that song, Time of the... Of course, they had one. She's Not There. They had so many other other songs, right? They've got millions. They've got... They have hundreds yeah, of Yeah, millions of plays. Billions, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's so many things that this band brought to the table mm -hmm. on this record. They, like, went into the studio and basically brought it. Yeah. And the story behind this record that is so fascinating is that it didn't do well. Right. Initially, this album... Mm -hmm. Was a flop, yeah. It just flopped. It, it, right, right. You know, just kind of went away. Yeah. In the meantime, time of the season was not big over there in the mm -hmm. UK, but it was huge here. Yeah. And it became one of those, those genre-defining uh, songs, and... I mean, I, I think of it, you know, I get anything from Cream or obviously the Beatles, the Stones and very psychedelic. And that song's, in, you know, it, you can't have a movie or a production about the 60s without that song. Right. It, you know, um, the album you know. for me, and I'll just analyze it from this, you know, the vinyl end of things. Yes, because you are. The, the Beach Boys, Pet Sounds, Velvet Underground and Nico. The Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society, Forever Changes. The Stooges' first record, and of course, Big Star, many many of Big Star's records yeah. with Alex Shilton. That's what this record is. It is that good. Yeah. It deserves to be in the top yeah. 10, top 20 of all time. Yeah. Uh, some people re regard this to be a better record than the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's and mm -hmm. and that 60s pop. It captured that 60s pop glory yeah. that um, some say that the Beatles went overboard, you know. Yeah, no, and it's a great point. They just, they kept it true to the music, true to the message, and maybe not having all that hype helped them, do you think? You know, maybe. Well, I think you know? when you have a record, a seminal record like this, that doesn't do well, mm -hmm. and and then over time, it is judged, Yeah, I think it, it gets a much more fair perspective. But And something like this, you find it, and it's 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 exciting to find something, uh, you know, like okay, you know, a couple songs here and there, but to find a record like that and just be like, wow! I mean, you know, you're 
it's like it, it's kind of like the deep dives we do online or you know you do in a record shop or i do on youtube or wherever and it's like this this is phenomenal <laughs> you know yeah. it's it's and so it's it's a lot of people experiencing that over the course of 50 years yeah. you know which is a you know we're all connected to that moment of discovering this thing that was not critically acclaimed in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Like, think about that. All of us throughout five decades as fans that found this record are connected to that experience, you know? It's an amazing thing. Cullen's voice, just one of my favorite voices, yeah. just blows me away. Timeless, um, yeah. It's like there with Nick Drake, mm -hmm. it's there with Chet Baker. It's kind of a, a whispery, but just unbelievably beautiful voice. Yeah. And, um, we got to talk about his voice a bit. We got to talk about what instruments they used to make the record. And who used them before. <laughs> and who used them before they yeah, used them. That's that, and how that they attained those instruments. Right. How it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um. Glorious. Just an amazing record. And, and the thing that really blows me away to this day is that the guys, they quit. Yeah. They packed it in after right. this. Yeah, they, that's it. Yeah, they yeah. were done. And uh, I think, you know, obviously, you know, Argent w uh, came out, came later that, you know, Hold Your Head Up, huge yep. hit. Um, and God lyrics. gave rock and roll to you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that you know from Kiss. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I didn't know that. I was, my mind was blown. Which I think Kiss recorded as a joke for the Wayne's World right. soundtrack. Yeah, but it became one of these I mean, songs. Bill and Ted, I'm Bill sorry. And, um, yeah. yeah, Bill and Ted, yeah. But yep. it became one of these iconic, well, not iconic, but one of these signature moments for Kiss, you know, that they'll yeah. do, at least in their acoustic sets, I think. But, um... They're, they're going back in. It's going to be an amazing show. Yeah. They were so excited. They were like kids talking about this stuff. And um, these guys haven't been able to tour, obviously, mm -hmm. since right. COVID hit in March yeah. of, yeah. Uh, of 2020. They, they made this record. Right. They, had a, they had stuff before this record. Mm -hmm. They had singles. They had, they had a ton of songs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, enough to put out several other records of, of material. Uh, they just had one out for Record Store Day. Mm -hmm. Uh, in 2020, actually, yeah. um, they stopped recording. They, they, they were like, "We're they done." Were done. They, they, were they, done. they were like, they felt like they were failures. They thought that this was it, mm -hmm. and they called it a day. They, they figured, right? Well, if that didn't do anything, then what's the point? Right. And then history reveals this, you know, this gem that they didn't even think of at the time, right. which is really great. And and that's why you know it. It's that's what's wonderful about an album being out there and being discovered and and, and everything and 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for vindication you right. know history can be the ultimate vindication and and that um, we got to talk to him about that we got to talk to him about so much stuff yeah um, and they were wonderful and they just and they're you know it was kind of like and you said this about the KK Downing interview too you know here are pioneers who are you know they're in the, they're they're up you know, up a bit in years and they're speaking yeah. about this like, like they're high school kids yeah. making music for the first time or something or, you know, 20, you know, doing their debut record or something and, and they're so excited and they're smiling and they're beaming and I love that and you feed off that energy and it's amazing, you know? Um, it's, it's a special thing. It's a special connection to, to be a part of that, you know, or to, you know, on the, on the other end of the conversation. I yeah. loved that. To see this this band come back together like they have in in, in the more recent years, yeah. to uh, play concerts, and they they've made they made another record in there as well. Um, to see that stuff happening, really, uh, it's just charming. It's yeah. just really neat to see. Really nice to see. Yeah. That because Rod and, and Colin really get, really 
bounced off of each other really well. They did, yeah. And and they work really well together. You can just tell, mm -hmm. you know. There's a brother. There's no hard family. feelings. There's right. No, it's just uh, refreshing because so many British yeah. bands are the, not like that. The stiff upper lip, right? Yeah. There's the the yeah. The, there's so much tension and. You know, they're just, they're old mates and, and they're fantastic yeah. together, you know. And if one, you know, if one didn't remember something, like Rod would say, you know, Colin, do you remember this? And, you know, and back and forth. And I, I just love that. I, I mean, we just talked to Steve Hackett. Steve said when we asked, you know, have you have you had a chance to hang out with them, the band, the band Genesis, yeah. since, since they've been rehearsing? He says, we don't talk. Right. They we, don't. We don't talk. Right. It's true. You they know, just, and now Chester Thompson's brought into that thing as well. Yeah, with Phil Collins. Yeah, they don't from, speak, and which is a shame because you never thought Phil Collins and Chester Thompson would have that kind of tension. But something happened on a solo tour yeah. with Phil, and boom, you know, Chester slammed him in the yeah. press, and yeah, and, and that's it, and that's that's that. But uh, and and with Genesis and Steve Hackett, they've got he Steve Hackett told us he has some dates um, that are the, the same night, different venues in the same city, but between him and Genesis, you yeah. Know? It was kind of like um, uh, Pink Floyd in like the the 80s when uh, I think it was 87, the momentary lapse of reason yeah. when that was out. Um, uh, Roger Waters, of course, Roger Waters. Yes, yeah, said they were uh, yeah. they, they were in the same. I think it was Cleveland. <laughs> yeah. He was, um, the band was in a big stadium and and he was playing like a small club Agor, that same Agor, night. Agor, yeah. Yeah. Right, right, exactly, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. So it was a bit of a humbling moment. Yeah. yeah. After all the bad the press and you know heated nature, but. But yeah, very refreshing to see these two gents together, and and after all these years, and just excited. And you know what? Honestly, I think still excited to be here. You yeah. know, which let's be honest. I mean, all the people we've lost. You know, Charlie Watts, Dusty Hill, and that's just in recent days. You know, uh, all these pioneers. You don't know who's going to be here. No. You know, we also talked to uh, Mr. Blundstone about yeah. uh, his one year um, one year album his album that he made right after the zombies yeah. broke up which is a classic which is a it's a absolute classic. yeah you got me into it yeah it was a great an question amazing listen it's an amazing record and it's almost like a zombies record and on its own but yeah. I'm, i won't go there but um if you haven't heard it i'm sure zombies fans know about it yeah. but a uh, one year has an anniversary coming up and uh, we got to talk to him about some um outtakes and unreleased material mm -hmm. that may or may not be on the record yeah um that was really fascinating to me yeah because um you know you're going into the studio after you guys poured it out mm -hmm. and you feel like a failure right and you go back into the studio to try to do your own thing yeah that's got to be tough it's got to be hard yeah because you're you, you feel like you're are you snake bitten or you, you feel like there's just sort of a uh, you know, you you don't know what to expect. You really don't know. That album cover is just so. It's very British too. You know, it's very. Yeah. Uh, it's fantastic. It resembles kind of a harvest. The, yeah, folk, right. Folk that era. Record of the era. Mm -hmm. And I'm um, surprised it wasn't on Harvest, to tell you the truth. Yeah, and he talked about Chris White. I think in his role mm -hmm. on the record, um, uh, just uh, you know, he of course it deals with uh, a breakup, right? Carolyn. Uh, yeah, Carolyn. Uh, what was Monroe? Your last name, Monroe? Monroe, yeah. I think it's yeah, M U N R O, yeah. Um, so it's there's a lot of heartbreak on that record, um, but it's brilliant. Um, Robin Platts uh, of all music gave the album four out of five stars in writing, 
I read uh, somewhere it was considered to be one of the best breakup yeah. records of all time. Yeah, yeah. Widely considered to be Blundstone's best solo album. One year is the perfect showcase for his distinctive, breathy voice. You know, this is from the, uh, of course, Wikipedia page, but quoting uh, Robin Platt's of all music. I mean, it just, it, it's, you know, it, it still captures an era, too, because, you know, it was 71, so there's a bit of a change there. Yeah. But it's still, I mean, that's the music, albums, the best albums to me are time capsules of that moment, you yeah. know? And it just, it captures what was happening as the, the music was turning a yeah. little bit. But still, those 60s influences yeah. were there. I dig that. I just love that. She's not there starting to become like all along the watchtower right. from Hendrix. When, right, Whenever right. there's a sixth, there's a, hey, we need to convey that this movie was, <laughs> we're coming out of the 60s here. Mm -hmm. and, and then you hear, you know, she's not there. Yeah. You hear Jimmy doing burp, 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 yep. burp. You just know it. You just and, absolutely um, know it. Or, or CCR's Fortunate Son. I would say those are probably the three big ones right, right now. The big three, right. Yeah. But I, we really hope you enjoy this. We, you know, we also hope that you um, patronize the band and check out the, yeah. their live stream. There's a real quick um, point of purchase uh, page yep. where you can um, grab a ticket for 25 bucks. 25 bucks to see the zombies. I mean, that's, you know, that's probably what it would cost back. And they said there's the going to be a lot of surprises. Yeah, they did. And, of course, uh, the iconic rock journalist. Yeah, David Fricky. He's going to be hosting it. Uh, the band will also field questions from a virtual audience yeah. uh, of surprise celebrity guests. Uh, that's from abbeyroad.com. How cool, you know, and you think about this. I mean, they had, they had touring plans postponed until 2022 because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So they jumped right at the chance to do this yeah. digital virtual world tour. How cool. So you can check us out, you know, get a little preview. Yeah. Um, maybe uh, get yourself fired up for the concert and mm -hmm. then step on over and yeah. try to get a question in that... Yeah. Uh, we didn't. We we spent about an hour talking to him. Absolute blast. Uh, mm -hmm. We we um, we definitely like to talk to him again. We we yeah. actually threw that around with them, and they were into it, and we're he, into it. And he, yeah, especially Colin for his uh, for one year. I mean, yeah. that's gonna be great. That's gonna be. Really I can't cool. wait to uh, yeah. tap into that record. That that's like Nick Drake's um, Pink Moon mm -hmm. record. Right. Oh, it's just so good. I, yeah. I, I like that breathy English singer. I, Nick Drake. When I first heard him, I, I kind of stopped in my tracks. Mm. And I have to say the same about Colin. It just has that incredible... Yeah. Um, he also has incredible range, but it's just the way he sings, the yeah. style that he sings. Yeah, and... It captures me. And watching, you know, honestly, that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame show from a couple of years ago was so good. And Colin was just... I, I've never heard it that's him... That's I've never heard anyone sing like that. He still got yeah. it too. He still has it. It's it's like a fine wine. I mean, he's they all yeah they both do and and uh, you know of course uh, Mr. Argent doing the you know the yeah. the keys and just that solo. It's wild. That's one of my favorite Hall of Fame performances. Yeah, I agree. That one and yes. Yep. Or probably I would say my top two. Yeah, I think that, in that order. Even the, I, I like the E Street Band too. David Sanchez, who we had on the show, I went back and watched yeah. that and Bruce is looking <laughs> at him head on as he's yeah. doing a little solo. Not a little, a massive. They got solo. everybody, everybody yeah. together. Yeah, that was great. I yeah. love that stuff. But check it out. And uh, yeah, September 18th is when the uh, live stream will go down. But uh, we've got the boys, the lads, right here. Yeah. So what do you say? Let's roll some tape, shall we? Yes. Well, no one told me about her, the way she lied. Well, no one told me about her, how many people cried. But 
Hi, this is Colin Blundstone from The Zombies. Hiya, Rod Argent here from The Zombies. And Argent, uh, if you go way back. Great to have you both uh, from The Zombies on the program here. Um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, The Zombies. Uh, you guys are getting ready for um, the Abbey Road Studios uh, live, your first live stream in London on September 18th. And uh, of course, you're always busy doing other things. First, gents, how are you doing uh, right now? Oh, which fine. Shall I? <laughs> That's really fine. I'm not quite sure what the restrictions are in, in America at the moment, but there are still restrictions here, but um, they, they're getting looser and looser all the time. So life has nearly gone back to as it was before, which is absolutely brilliant. Obviously, we're going to be um, rehearsing in the near future because we're also recording an album as well at the moment so there's lots to keep us busy and of course we're really looking forward to the live broadcast from Abbey Road on September the 18th I mean that's going to be brilliant fun I mean we, we did loads of of recording at Abbey Road obviously we did the obviously an Oracle album um, right. which which was uh, which was I, I think that was our first experience Cole wasn't it of Abbey Road yes um, and then after that, um, Chris White, the bass player in the original band, and myself uh, produced an album for Colin called One Year There. And then I, I, uh, I produced a lot of the Argent stuff there, which um, including Hold Your Head Up, you know, and all those things. Yeah. Um, so we've got a real history with Abbey Road, but we were so knocked out that they really uh, wanted us to do this. They asked us to do this live concert. And it, it's a bit scary because we haven't actually, we won't have played for 16 months when we actually, when we actually turn up, you know, for the date. So we're, we're trying to organise a couple of rehearsals at the moment, aren't we? Absolutely. The last time we played was in Spain in December 2019. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I hope I recognise the rest of the band when we get together. <laughs> you probably won't now, Cole. No. <laughs> we should wear name tags. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Are Hugh and Chris coming? Are they going to be in this in this version? Hugh and Chris? Yeah. No, no, no. They play with us when we do Odyssey and Oracle. Okay. But we, we have a, a touring band. Uh, both both Hugh and Chris decided they didn't want to have a uh, to spend the whole life uh, touring you know they've effectively retired from touring really but they just very kindly came out of retirement to do the odyssey and oracle uh, shows which is great you know i mean i never thought we'd get the chance to do that and i really enjoyed it and it was particularly interesting on the last time we did it the last tour because we were touring with the brian wilson band so it, i mean it was just such a thrill to hear all those wonderful classics that that Brian and his great band play in concert. That's amazing, Rod and uh, Colin. Of course, the uh, core uh, members of the Zombies. And uh, what is, what is it like to carry the torch for British pop all these years, and and to go to this iconic place that you're getting ready for? Well, it's it's crazy, really, um, because I mean, when we started out, everybody, I mean, including John Lennon, thought that things had a life of about three years, and that was it. Um, and he said, I don't want to be doing this when I'm 30, you know, <laughs> and, and it just, just felt crazy. Um, but 
and, and I know that people thought that a song, I mean, the, almost the very first song I ever wrote was She's Not There. And um, I honestly thought after a couple of years, no one would ever hear it again. And, and in common with a lot of people from around that time, um, this stuff has lasted longer than any form of popular music before. It's just crazy. And do you know that one of the great things is wherever we play, um, obviously there are people that have followed us all the, all the way along um, and, and we, we absolutely love the fact that they're there. But we always have a young component in the audience as well. That, that always happens. Um, and, and it's quite a sizable young component sometimes. And, you know, to get, to get that feeling of being able to relate um, as well to a current generation seems mind-blowing to us. And it's really fantastic. And, and, and they really do. They really take in all the stuff old and new that we're doing now. I mean, our last album made the, the, the top 100 album sales in Billboard. Um, to our amazement, we had, we had a call from Billboard while we were on tour. And they said, we just wanted you to know that for the first time in 50 years as the Zombies, you've, um, you've, you've made the top 100 album sales. Um, and, you know, we were there for three weeks or so. It wasn't forever, but it was still, you know, unlooked for at that particular time. And that, that was a crazy thing to happen as well. It was lovely. And, and, and when we did this last concert that Colin talked about in Madrid, uh, it wasn't a huge concert. It was only about 400 people there. I mean, it was a packed club, basically. But there wasn't anybody there over, over 30. And, and they were all singing all uh, lesser-known songs, as well as uh, some of the new material that we'd recorded as well. Um, I mean, I'm not pretending that happens all the time, but, you know, it's really, it's really energising. It's rejuvenating, actually. It's fantastic. I remember that gig so well because um, we'd played an encore and they, they just, they wouldn't let us go. And it was sort of 10 minutes of applause, maybe longer. And in the end, Rod said, oh, we, you know, we didn't know what to play. We, we'd been playing for nearly two hours. And Rod said, listen, let's go out and play The Way I Feel Inside, which is a song, it's been in a couple of films, but it was also, I think, on our first album, wasn't it, Rod? Yeah, and yeah. And it's basically me singing on my own. And Rod just sort of uh, shadows in, in, in the background. Hmm. And we hadn't rehearsed it, hadn't played it in such a long time. And um, we went out there. I was a little concerned because we hadn't played it in such a long time that would I remember it? And I'm completely exposed. And as soon as we started playing, the audience sang every line of this obscure <laughs> song. It was fantastic. They, they knew it really well. I needn't, have, I needn't have worried about whether I knew it or not. It was great. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a wonderful concert. Unfortunately, we haven't played since then. Um, <laughs> it's, it's been very strange, very strange. Well, that, go ahead, go ahead, Shane. Since you brought this up, um, she's not there. Uh, we actually have a listener that wanted to kind of know there's, there's kind of some debate online about the meaning of the song. Um, maybe you could shed some light on it. You don't have to if you don't want to. But uh, some, some people think it's about a ghost. Some people think it's about a vampire. Some people think it's about a narcissist. Uh, um, well, it's, it's really, I mean, I, I love the Bob Dylan quote, actually, when someone said to him about the song, um, what's the song about? He said, it's about three and a half minutes, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I really like that. But 
at the same time, it was written as a, uh, a simple relationship story. Um, and I actually wrote it for the session that we had coming up. So I spun a story around the first phrase because um, I just listened to a John Lee Hooker album. And one of the tracks on the John Lee Hooker album was uh, No One Told Me. Now, I, I hasten to add that nothing else in my song had anything to do lyrically or musically with the John Lee Hooker song. But I thought no one told me that that sounds like that sounds like something that could lead anywhere. So I just sat down at the piano. Um, we, we had we'd only ever done one self-written song before Carl. I'd, I'd written that yeah. song. It's all right with me. I think that's yeah. the only one yeah. we did. Um, and uh, I, and no one thought anyone was going to write anything. But I, I presented this to the guys and within two weeks we were recording. Um, and we had that naivety and arrogance that you always have when you're 18 years old, you know, or 17 or 18 years old. And I thought, yeah, it's going to sound great when it's recorded. The band's going to sound great playing it. Colin's going to sound great singing it. Um, and you don't see any of the pitfalls that you later learn can happen. You know, the, the fact of being able to get a great recording engineer, um, of getting a great sound on the record, of, of everything working, suiting the guy's voice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And magically that, that all came about and, and, and really all worked beautifully. Um, and it was, a, it was a pretty fantastical time, actually. It wasn't, it wasn't we took it for granted in a way. And then uh, it came out and it was a, a smaller hit in the UK than anywhere else in the world, really. But it became number one in Cashbox in the, in the US. Um, and, and we were knocked out. Of course, it was a, it was a, a fulfillment of a fantasy, but we thought, yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. And, and, but, but actually what the song's about is just a simple relationship story, you know, and, and I always think a great thing about a song is that people, if you write it honestly and you write it and you really feel that lyrically it works, then people can bring their own experiences to a song. And I still feel that today. Um, there's, there's a song I've just written called Different Game. And I won't tell you exactly what it was about, but it was about something very specific. Mm. But the people that have heard it so far, um, just all bring, you know, a couple of people said to me, oh, that's really moving. That obviously really encapsulates what's just been happening and everything. And, and it hasn't, but, yeah. but it, it brings that sort of, in inverted commas, that truth, yeah, you know, into into common uh, common experience, um, and and I think that's the sign of a song that works actually. So I'm re I'm really knocked out that people uh, think so much about the meaning of, of of things like she's not there. It, it's, I remember talking to a, um, Bernie Torpin once about a song I'd recorded of his, and he wrote it with Elton. And I, I just it is the, the the lyric is a bit deep. And it's not obvious. And uh, I said to him, you know, uh, what, what you know, really was that song about? And he said to me, it's about whatever it's about to you, whatever it means to you, that's what it's about. And I think really that's true of it. It's more or less what Rod said. Um, I think that's true of all really good songs. It's, it's what it means to you. It's amazing too, because the, you know, that song and of course uh, time of the season, they're both so iconic for, 
that particular genre. I mean, it's it's amazing if you have you know one hit that can symbolize an era. You have multiple in, in this case. What what's that part of it like to have you know a song like "She's Not There" and and "Time of the Season" just be these instant reminders of an era? You know, not just what people may feel, but it, it's a whole era. It's a whole experience, and probably one of the greatest eras of I think British rock and rock in general. Well, I, I think it's sorry, Cole. I was just going to say, I think it's absolutely brilliant that, um, you know, we can play those two songs and many others as well, all around the world. And people, they, people know those songs and they mean something to people. And also, as you rightly said, they conjure up a time. And that's been very much to our advantage because especially time of the season has been used time and time again in films. To, and it's usually to illustrate a, a, a time, you know, a, a, a year, a specific year. And uh, actually the new Disney film, Cruella, uh, features time of the season. And, and it, it just happens over and over again. Um, it's also been used for a, a quite a big video over here for uh, a very famous football team that's, that's, that's just happened. Uh, Chelsea have just won the European Cup. It's really big news over here. And their new kit, is, is being advertised online. And they've used the whole of, of time of the season to, to put the, uh, the, um, the musical background to their video, which is, is fantastic for us. And it helps us reach a whole new strata of the population who are perhaps primarily interested in football or soccer, as you would say, and might not be familiar with what we do. But because they've used the the music to advertise the new Chelsea strip. Um, we're, we're reaching more people than ever. So I hope that answered your question. Oh, it's, also, it's also great to see those young footballers, fantastically young, talented footballers, you know, like Mason Mount and the other guys in the, in the Chelsea team, all grooving to it on the video. And, and you know, that, that's, that's really <laughs> lovely. But also, um, uh, one thing that occurred to me when you were talking then was the film Awakenings. Um, yeah. it, it was used for when the people that had the sleeping, um, that had the flu and the sort of uh, sleeping sickness thing that happened with the 1917 flu um, were brought back to ordinary life for a couple of weeks by a scientist called Oliver Sacks. Um, and Randy Newman chose the music for that film and he chose a song that typified the whole of this uh, of that period in the 60s which which was around the late 60s um and he chose time the season and and it's 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 fantastic i mean that's really just expanding on what colin said really it's fantastic to get people to use that to illustrate a focal point it really is yeah i mean odyssey and oracle for me and a lot of other people is one of the best albums ever made. Did you guys go into this? Um, and we also have another person asking, Dave Mann from Washington DC asked, did you know that this album was something special when you laid this down in the studio? Did you guys kind of know that you just created a masterpiece? I don't think so personally. Also, I think we probably remember this period a little bit differently, but what I remember at the, at the end of the album was believing that that was the best we could possibly do. We that, did feel that. Mm. Yeah, that was my overriding feeling. That's the best we can possibly do. And when um, it wasn't really uh, commercially successful, 
it, it was a bit of a heartbreaker, really. And in a way, I mean, in fact, we'd already broken up before the album was released, but that was a time when singles were all important. And we released a single from the album in the UK. And I think we released a Carousel 44, wasn't it, Rod? We did, that was the first one, in the UK, yeah. Yeah, and it didn't do anything. And it just seemed, this is the best we could possibly do. It's, it's not getting any reaction. And I think that that was one of the main reasons why the band finished. There were, there were probably other reasons as well. And it's just funny because the album has just grown sort of on its own. No one's been promoting it. No one's been marketing it. It can only be word of mouth. And sort of about five years later, it was obvious that people were getting to know this album. 10 and 15 years later, it was, you know, it was becoming quite a hot item. Yeah. Um, by now, but is it 50 years later or something like that? It is thought of as, you know, a very important piece of work. I, I always say to Rod, I just hope they're not going to wait 50 years to recognise the albums that we're recording <laughs> now because we're going to be around. Sorry, Rod, what were you going to say? I was going to say that I'll be around, but you might not be. <laughs> um, but, but the, uh, yeah, I mean, leading up to Odyssey and Oracle, um, we were pretty pissed off with how our, recent singles have been sounding. Um, and they were produced by a, a great musician, a lovely guy, but from really a previous era. Um, and they weren't giving the feeling that Chris and I, as, as the two writers in the band, wanted to bring forward on, on, onto, the, uh, onto the singles. And in fact, time and time again, I remember we did a cover of My Girl Cole because when it was a hit in the States, and, and, and not here. And I remember thinking how good that sounded. But while we were on the, on the way to the studio, um, the Otis Redding version came out, didn't it? Um, so, you know, so that, that, that scuppered that. Um, but we did a version of, of the little Anthony song, Going Out of My Head, for instance, and then lots of our own songs, but they never came off in the way that we wanted them to. And our demos were better than the, than the, the final record. And, and, and this was driving us crazy. So Chris and I broke off the relationship with the producer, um, who was fine once we'd done that. Um, and we thought we'd got to make an album ourselves. And if it's in the air at all that the band might break up, then um, we have to get some of our own songs down in such a way that we hear them. And we felt we did that. Um, and it was all recorded very quickly uh, in terms of, each session was only about three hours long. Wow. Um, and, uh, and, and in fact, the very first session we did, um, I, I think we recorded two songs in the three hours. We've just seen the, the, the sheets, the worksheets from Abbey Road. And um, it was all done very quickly because we didn't have that much money, but we were really knocked out that we felt that, yes, this is how we wrote the song. This is how it should sound. And, and so we were really very, very happy to have done it. We didn't know if it was going to be successful. Mm. And then when the first single wasn't successful, we broke up. But then, of course, a year and a half later, it became number one in Cashbox again, number two or three in Billboard, I think. Um, and um, it was a number one hit in many places around the world, actually. But not, instead of the poor old UK... <laughs> yeah. as usual, There's never been it. a hit here. Time of the season has never been a hit in the no. UK, has Never. Astonishing. Will this, will this remix do it? Do you think this? Chelsea it could do. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Do. I mean, there I are mean, a lot of. There are a lot of 
a Chelsea fan, so um, they might be really interested in it, you know. So, well, fingers crossed, we'll see. Those days in the studio, I mean, what, talk about the hunger, you, I mean, that young bands feel. I mean, you could, I imagine, certainly relate to that back in those days. I mean, you know, you go into a studio, especially something like Abbey Road and Studio Two, and it's like, okay, we've got to do this. I mean, that's what I, I, I'm just trying to imagine what is going through your mind at the time, you know? I mean, right, Shane? I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, I think it was a full, sorry, it was a fulfillment of a fantasy. And, and, you know, I remember first hearing Elvis Presley when I was 11. And from that moment, this guy who seemed to come from a different universe, I thought, I've got to be part of this rock and roll. These are early rock and roll things that he was doing. And, and the way he was, I didn't know it at the time, the way he was grabbing black music um, and, and melding it with country a little bit, but provided something with real soul, which was much more than uh, anything that was around at that time. And then eight years later, we went in the studio and we produced a record that we later learned that Elvis had on his jukebox, you know, so it was like a turnaround. And, and, and I know it's called the British Invasion. And, and it, in a sense, I guess that's what it was. Um, but we thought all the people over there would hate us, you know, for copying American music. But we didn't realise at the time um, that once we put it through the English filter, it came back as something different and it did come back to something different I mean when I listen to She's Not There Now it doesn't sound like anything else that I can think of that was around um, and, and and you know so we did get something of our own but we were incredibly passionate about it um, it's I mean it's certainly personally speaking it's all I ever wanted to do and I must say you know that when we made the our last album was called Still Got That Hunger and and we still get the, the thing that excites us, I mean, it's fantastic getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's wonderful. And I'm not belittling that at all. But really what excites us is when Colin comes around to my place, for instance, and we first start um, working on a song together. Uh, and, and I can hear that it's suiting Colin. And Colin gets excited. Then we take it to the band. Um, and, and you see it working in front of you. It's still like no other feeling in the world. Um, and, and that feeling, I certainly feel, is, is, um, is just as genuine, as strong now as it was when we started. But, but and then when you're on stage, you know, and I, I mentioned something about playing to um, some young, younger people in the audience. Um, and sometimes when you get all that energy back from the auditorium, it, honestly, it feels like being 18 again. There's no difference. For that time you're on stage, there is absolutely no difference. You feel a huge amount of energy going out and coming back at you. And what other profession can you say that about? I mean, there's, I don't think there's anything. So it's, a, you know, you, I think we're blessed to be able to still make a living in this business because we still get, in our own way, we still get as much out of it. It's going to be like yeah. the fans too. But I was just going to say about Abbey Road that um, because uh, we were talking about that earlier on and People forget that at that time, so this, be, this would be the summer of 67, Abbey Road was quite strict. Well, they were very strict in that you started at 10 o'clock. You couldn't start before then in the morning and you went till one and you had to stop at one. There was an hour's break and you went from two till five. And most importantly of all, you could go from seven till 10 where you had to stop. And we were in studio three um, 
not at the same time as the Beatles, but the Beatles always recorded in Studio Two. But Studio Three wasn't particularly well soundproofed. And so of all the studios, the Studio Three, they were very strict about finishing at 10 o'clock. I mean, it doesn't sound very rock and rolly, does it? But, but that's the way it was, uh, because there was a big block of flats next door and they complained about the noise if, uh, <laughs> if you went over 10 o'clock. Hmm. So uh, uh, Odyssey and Oracle was recorded under those conditions. We had, firstly, we didn't have a big budget. But right. secondly, the, we couldn't overrun because they were so strict and I remember one time which I've mentioned before Rod that we were it was it was one o'clock and it was the only time we were all singing harmonies all of us around the piano singing harmonies red lights on and it just went to one o'clock and the Abbey Road men in long brown coats the guys that used to cart the gear around they just walked in we were singing on the mic they walked in and they took that piano out and took it to another studio and because we were so short our budget was so small we just kept singing we just kept singing I don't know if that tape was used or not I'd love to think <laughs> it was but I mean we were just flabbergasted because we were actually singing harmonies and these guys walked in and took a piano from right in the middle of us and then took it out of the studio but uh, I think Abbey Road's very different now. And I was, it's because of the Beatles, because the Beatles worked very, very long hours. They would go right through the night. And, and also our particular studio, I call, call it our studio, Studio 3, has been completely rebuilt. So I, I think it's, it's completely soundproof now. So you can, you can work whatever hours you want. But in 1967, you couldn't. It was very strict. That's incredible because you think about like um, creativity doesn't know knows no bounds, right? Or or creativity knows no time limits. You would think, but but that's true. But the, you know, the only thing is that kind of subconsciously, if you know it's got to be done in a certain period, I don't know how this works, but you do it. Oh. And so without without there being any conscious. Um, uh, without there being any conscious stress put on us, in some ways, I think it's it's invigorating because you know it's got to be done and you just do it, you know. Like I, I found that work quite well for, for me personally. I disciplined you, yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I, um, Colin, just, I, I know there's an anniversary coming up for uh, year one, your, your uh, masterpiece yeah. after the zombies. Is there uh, any surprises we're going to get with uh, this release? Uh, is this getting a an anniversary release it is getting an, it's getting a 50th anniversary release wow uh, it's coming out in november and there's talk at the moment that i'll be doing um about 12 concerts of one year it's in its entirety uh, and i'll be doing the west coast and then chicago and then some dates on the east coast so i mean it's very exciting once again i mean rod produced one year so we're we're in it together really um right. once it, it's another album that seems to have um got a, another life if you like years after it was released and uh, and I, I think it's wonderful that people should be interested in in that product all the years after we finished it yeah do you uh on the like the song misty roses um yes. i definitely hear like a chet baker a Nick Drake kind of feel to it. Were they, were either of those uh, gentlemen influences on you and the way that you sing or that? Um, just... Not at the time, no. I, I, I've been introduced to them 
after one year. I wasn't familiar with either of them before. No. No, it's, just, it's just very natural. Um, on on um, Mr. Rose's, the guitarist was a local guitarist who, who lived up the road. I think we probably went to the pub and had a couple of pints before we started. And then of course, it's, in, it's in just one tape played live. And then we realized it was quite short. I think it's probably about a minute and a half up to that point. And we thought, well, we've got to try and do something about that. And we were introduced to an absolutely wonderful string arranger called Chris Gunning. And he, he just had a masterstroke of putting a sort of a two minute Bartok-esque Bartok uh, string arrangement in the middle. Which we asked him to do, which Chris and I asked mm. him to, if he could do something in, in the style of a modern classical quartet like Bartok, yeah. Yeah. And, and then uh, he obviously then went back into the song. And I, I remember thinking at the time, how am I gonna sing over these in, this incredible arrangement? But it, it all worked okay. I mean, it, it was fine. The, the bit that intrigues me is that track was actually recorded in two very distinct pieces, actually in two different studios because we started off one year in uh, another studio and then we, we quickly moved to Abbey Road. And, Misty Roses was finished in Abbey Road, but it, it's a favorite song of mine, a wonderful Tim Hardin song. Uh, I think it's, you know, I just think it's beautiful. There's a great collection of uh, producers and production, you know, folks who come together on that too. Not, I mean, obviously, you know, you mentioned Tony Visconti, but so many others. And I'm just wondering like when you have so many people um, and obviously uh, uh, your colleague uh, who's with us right here too as well, uh, Rod, but when you're working on something like one year and you have so many different like, Folks, man, what's it like to pull all that energy um, together? Because everybody kind of adds a little something, right? Well, they do. But again, we were working on a very restricted uh, time budget, oh, yeah. which I think, as Colin so rightly says, does concentrate your energy and your mind. Okay. It really does. I mean, what I mean, uh, recording these days is fantastic. And, and, and strangely enough, the guy that, that designed all the Abbey Road uh, control rooms actually designed my little studio here that we're recording at the moment. I didn't even know that and, and, until it was happening. And he did it very cheaply as well, I have to say, which was, you know, the only way it was possible, really, because I, I would have imagined he was, you know, uh, my God, he's astronomical, but, but, it, but you know, it's a small studio and, and he did it. Um, but it was a, a, a very focused energy. We only had a certain amount of time to do it. These days, when you've got a million tracks, if you need them, inevitably you you spread out more yeah. you just do in terms of time if not in times of of using tracks you know if you try and do everything still all at the same time which more and more we're trying to do actually trying to recapture some of that energy that you get from instant uh playing together with everybody so everyone's listening to everybody else and they're they're subtly modifying their parts as to what they're hearing at that moment, and that's real creativity, I think, and and, and I think that's a, a, a joy to get. So we are trying to do that, um, but nevertheless, you do have unlimited time if you need it, particularly with, with your own studio. In those days, we just had these few three-hour sessions, mm. and we just had to get it done. And if something wasn't quite working, well, you made it work. You, you just bent things in such a way that, okay, this is it, you know, um, the string players are going in half an hour, so we've just got to get this done. Um, and, and somehow you do, and you capture something, and you capture that energy and that spark. So it, it, 
it was a really good way of doing things in, in a way, but you can't manufacture that. It's like, um, I know there was at one point where the Beatles um, tried to go back to how they used to record. They were saying, this is ridiculous. It's taking us days and days and days just to get down a backing track. Um, in the old days, we do it in, in uh, 20 minutes. Let's do it just like we used to do it. And they tried and, you know, conditions are different and it just didn't happen. So they, they, they used what was there. Uh, you know, you can't manufacture that process, but, um, but you know, th there was a huge amount of energy. And, you know, what you said earlier about being at that age and, and being passionate about what you're doing. You know, there is something about youth and, and inexperience and those things coming together and, want, and, and not feeling that you've got any limits and you just go out and do things. And, and, and that sort of experimentation is, is very valuable, I think, when you're that age. With the anniversary, um, Colin, is there, is there going to be some outtakes, maybe some acapella stuff, uh, any unreleased material coming into this? Uh, actually, there is. And it's been a huge surprise to me that um, it's all down to Chris White, really, the bass player from The Zombies. He and his sons have been going through a lot of his old tapes. And they've, they've come up with all these, I don't know if you would call them demos, but they're sort of song ideas because some of them are only sort of a minute and a half long, but they were all done for one year. And it was an extraordinary experience listening to these because some of them, there's most, they're all songs I wrote or song ideas that I wrote. And some of them, I didn't honestly recognize. I, I, <laughs> I just thought, what is this? I've no idea. I didn't remember the song and I certainly didn't remember the session at all. And wow. I think we've got 14. So I hope people will listen to them with an open mind because they're not really polished demos. They're just song ideas that we put down and some we use and, and some weren't. So yeah, there's, uh, so there's, there's 10 tracks on, from one year, but there's 14 demos that are gonna go with it. Um, so I'll be very interested to see how people respond to that. It's interesting. It, it must be amazing to look back and, and, and try to remember some of those things and, you know, oh, I did that. I, yeah, that's, that's, it was such an interesting process to go through. It, it is. It's a little bit frightening in a way that I, some of those tracks I don't remember. I don't remember anything about them, but it's certainly me singing. So, um, it, you know, it happened. I just yeah. don't remember. Absolutely, yeah. Where is uh, John Lennon's Mellotron now? Did, are you guys going to try to get that for the concert? <laughs> Lost your sound, Rod. I have. Yeah, we see you. We just don't hear you. Sorry. Um, uh, I've probably got my hand over the mic. Sorry. Um, it's, uh, it's, you've lost your, you've lost your yeah. face now. <laughs> I've lost my face. Okay. Hang on, what about that? No, sorry. <laughs> um, I, I think it probably has gone now. Uh, I, I can't imagine it's still there after all these years. I mean, we didn't even ask to use it at the time, but we just did use it. Um, and, you know, I'm eternally grateful that they left so much hanging around. I think we might have used one or two more of their instruments, though, Colin, as well. I, I seem to remember an electric harpsichord being there. I don't know whether we actually used that on something or maybe we did maybe we didn't i don't know 
Um, I can remember walking into the studio and there were all these percussion instruments on the floor. Yeah. And we knew they'd left the studio a couple of days before having finished Sergeant Pepper. So mm. we knew that the last people to use those percussion instruments were the Beatles. And we were yeah. huge Beatles fans. And, and as I said before, they were mostly in Studio Two, but they did record in Studio Three and they'd left the Mellotron and the percussion instruments there. So it was a, it was a real thrill for us and, um, and, and quite sort of energizing really in its way to think that we were the next people and inspirational. We, we were the next people into the studio after the Beatles. Fantastic, absolutely fantastic. It doesn't get much better than that. I mean, that's oh, no. Yeah. Your music has been so enduring and especially one of our favorite bands, of course, Kiss, uh, doing the cover of, um, you know, uh, God Gave Rock and Roll to You. Um, uh, what was that, <laughs> you know, what was that like for you, uh, Rod? I mean, it's such a, you had such an iconic version and then they do a cover and uh, what was it like to have that happen? Well, it was, it was pretty good, really. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid I didn't write that song. That was Russ Ballard who wrote that song. Um, uh, but we, you know, we, we all worked on it together before Argent did it. And then they covered it pretty faithfully, I have to say. Um, the, the, the bit that made me laugh was that they, they changed one couplet because they said there was one lyrical couplet in there that the American audience wouldn't understand, a lot of them. And that was, love Cliff Richard, but please don't tease. And uh, so um, they changed it um, to um, something else, just that one couplet. And, and then uh, claimed that they'd written the song, <laughs> <laughs> which was a which was a bit naughty, really, but um, but uh, uh, no, it was good, you know, because it was it was a pretty faithful uh, capture of, yeah. of the main part of the song, anyway. Although I have to say that I th I think our harmonies at the very end uh, of our version was were better, but yeah, no, I, I would agree there because your harmonies really capture more of the, I think that time period, which yeah, I, I I would have to agree with you on that. Your version's better. No. <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> You're the man. <laughs> <laughs> what well, I going back to Odyssey and Oracle. I mean, is it is it kind of a vindication for you guys now that you're you where you are with this 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 record and and everyone has come to you instead of you know um, the the record still being out there in anonymity. Well, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean. It just feels, to me personally, um, it just feels that we weren't so far off when when we were recording it. Maybe it was the wrong time. Um, I, you know, I think we were all bitterly disappointed. I know I was at, at the response to the album. But then to see this interest grow over the years and, and to where it is now, I mean, it's pretty phenomenal that 50 years after, well, it's, uh, um, it is 50 years, isn't it? 67 to yeah. Uh, it is yeah. more than 50 years. More than 50 years, yeah. After, after the record was made, people are still interested in it. People are still proclaiming it as being very special. It, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to feel. As you, you use the word vindication. I, I think that, that is a really good word to describe my feelings about it. I don't know how you feel, Rob. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always remember when... Um, oh, I've, I've lost... What have I done here? Hang on. Um, <laughs> oh, God. See you. All right. I've got everybody back. Um, I, I always remember Chris White phoning me up 
um, about, oh, I don't know, about 10 years after Odyssey and Oracle came out. And I remember him saying, uh, do you know, Rob, my kids are at university and, uh, you know, it's becoming a real cult album. I said, oh, is it? Oh, right, great. And then I put the phone down. I remember saying to my wife, no, it's not, you know, but it was, it really was at that time. And as Colin said, it's just grown and grown. Um, and it does sell more every year now than it ever did when it first came out, even when Time of the Season was number one in the US. Um, so it's, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, it's never going to be Dark Side of the Moon or anything like that in its sales, but my goodness, it, it has sold very many records now. And all these years later, its sales are as strong as ever. And, and it is a vindication in a way. And, and as I sort of hinted at before, the most extraordinary thing is that it doesn't seem to have dated enough for people from the present generation to not find something genuine in it. And, and that, that's a lovely thing. Is it the same for like, uh, hold your head up too? I mean, even the Argent stuff is, uh, you know, it's the same, it's, it's uh, that was what, 72, I think? That, that was 72. But you know, the thing is that, and we do this now as well, we always do things for the right reasons, if you like. We never try and do it just to be commercial, and we never did. We never thought we've got to get to a hook in 30 seconds or something like that. We always try to excite ourselves and put something out there that worked. And I think in the short term, that can be a disadvantage because it can mean that maybe DJs don't hear it as the sort of thing that's on the charts at that moment or something like that. So maybe we don't get played. Uh, initially a lot but sometimes in the long run it actually means that it dates less than some of our contemporaries did and I think in the long term it's worked brilliantly for us. The the themes on Odyssey are so mature age ages that you guys were I mean it's a it's a bit of a dark album as well in some places against the Beatles which was poppier uh, sometimes almost childlike. What, where was that? Where was Chris coming? Where were you coming? Where were all you guys coming from lyrically on that record? Well, it was really just again our genuine feelings. Whatever, if, if we just read something, um, I remember writing a rose for Emily, and I just I uh, just read a William Faulkner short uh, story, um, and. Again, A Rose for Emily has got nothing to do with the Faulkner short story. It's a very different song. Um, but at the same time, it just was very evocative to me. It just, it just pulled up a picture and immediately led me into a story. Um, and and they, they were all just genuine and natural. And I think, I think I can speak for Chris as well when I say that. I think he felt exactly the same thing. Chris and I were sharing a, an apartment at the time. You know, we, we, we each had a... Um, a room and there was a third person there as well uh, Terry Quirk actually who did the um, the cover illustrations um, for the album uh, and you know everything was very genuine very enthusiastic um, there wasn't a conscious theme behind it it was just really I think some of it sort of captured a little bit the zeitgeist of the time um, again it was a natural thing and it was it was just how we were feeling and we just went went with it um and and in the end when you go back to it many years later it does really have a cohesive mood it it really does it's extraordinary and 
I know that Paul Weller, who over here in the UK is just about the biggest star you could possibly imagine. I know it's not the same in the US, but certainly in the UK, it has been for many years. He's absolutely enormous. He continually names this as his favorite album of all time. And, and he, right from the early days when he first discovered it, when he was in the jam, um, you know, who were really um, energized and punky when they started out and didn't seem to be, to have very much in common with what we were doing um, at all. Um, but he, he was blown away with it. And um, he always describes it as being autumnal. Um, that was his word for it. Yeah. And I never thought of that at the time. You know, we were just trying to make the songs, but it doesn't really have a cohesive mood. When you go back and listen to it all, um, and it has got that autumnal um, sort of browns and, 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 and dark greens in it. It, it, it. it has got that feeling. And it was just a reflection of us at the time, I think. I mean, I can't really say any more than that. Yeah, well, it's, well, and I think just that whole, you know, the phrase, you know, reflection of the time is so, I mean, that's, again, I just, I can't get over the fact that there's not many artists who can say that, you know, especially artists who are still, you know, doing it today, like you all, which, which I think is, is fantastic. And um, the last question, at least that I had was, those, you know, DECA and, you know, some of those, those early labels, I mean, um, what, would you have ever thought that the industry would have become sort of what it is today, both in terms of the changes in the industry, uh, the recording styles, the technology, the time limits, like you mentioned earlier, like if you were to go back to your, your, your 1960s versions of yourselves and then ponder, you know, what music, popular music would be like in terms of the industry and production, 50 years later, you know, what would you have thought? I mean, is it, <laughs> this is no way to answer that. <laughs> it's just so- It, it amazes me because the, the music business is changing almost day by day. And, and, and so is the recording process, really. There are just uh, new ideas coming along all the time and it's, it's very hard to keep up. It, it, and I, I don't think any, any of us, you know, in, in the zombies really do consciously try to keep up with with the current things in the music business as rod said i think the writers write from their heart and and we perform to the best of our abilities it's in some ways that's what we did in the 60s and that's what we do now but if you were to ask me in the 60s if you were to ask me in 2000 you know what what's going to happen i would have been a million miles out i i've got listen i'll tell you a secret i haven't got the slightest idea how the music business works now. I have no, what is it? I've got no idea. Rod, Rod do you know how the music business well, works Well, I mean, now? whatever is a hit is, is, is just configured so differently, certainly over here, probably in the States as well. Um, as, uh, it doesn't bear any resemblance to what it was then. Um, I remember that um, in the days of, uh, there was a seminal program over here called Top of the Pops that the whole nation used to listen to at 7.30 in the evening on a Thursday. Um, and the whole nation, you know, you could ask anybody at any point in the week, what was the current number one record, if you like, or the current uh, biggest climbing record? Everybody would know. Uh, the passionate, the most passionate people from, uh, you know, in their 20s and 30s and everything, but also older people and, and even kids would all know what number one was. It was, it was really important somehow to the nation. Um, these days, 
I, I, like Colin, I haven't got a clue about any single in 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 the charts. Everything's streamed now, obviously, yeah. and I'm as uh, and I'm as guilty of that as anybody. I mean, it's just so easy to stream. You know, if there's something you want to hear, you just you just stream it. I mean, yeah. it's just so easy. But it, it, it it's changed the industry hugely, and and I think that uh, one thing that I dislike about the way records sound, and this is probably a reflection of my age, but um, uh, it, it is that it's so easy to get something that sounds hip quickly. In other words, you can sample a drum loop and you could sample a bass loop or something, um, and it would immediately sound like, um, it would immediately sound like something commercial. Um, and, 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 and then you'd fill it out and put it out. But so much of it sounds mechanical to me. Uh, most modern vocals sound completely mechanical to me, certainly in this country anyway. Um, yeah. yes, they're all, uh, they've all got um, auto-tune on them to such an extent that they sound metallic. Yep. Um, uh, all the, most of the rhythm sections are, 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 are created you know, artificially um, not everything, I know, but I mean, a large majority of it. Um, and it just doesn't sound like it has the soul that it used to have. I remember Colin saying many years ago that, um, that chord sequences were really important in, in rock and roll music. And, and if people um, started to discover uh, fashionable new chord sequences, it was people were tuned into that and they, they reacted creatively to it. These days, uh, most of the sort of harmonic content of, of, of a record in the terms of its chord sequences and things like that feel pretty primitive to me now. I'm not saying that's always bad. I mean, some of my favorite rock and roll records of all time have just got three chords in and that's fine. Um, but, you know, that side of things, that the only way you could make things in the old days really work was to get the structure 100% right because otherwise it didn't sound right, it didn't sound effective. Um, and whatever that structure was in terms of harmony, in terms of the shape of the record, um, the, the way it builds and the way it resolved and everything, these days, um, you don't seem to need to do that. And that structure becomes less and less important because you can make it sound pretty immediate immediately. Um, and, uh, and I think you lose something in that. And, and it's a real, I, I think it's a real shame. Uh, albums, I mean, I think it's great that young people, um, the only product they buy these days tends to be vinyl. And, um, and I think that's terrific uh, because there was something about buying a favorite album that you would take back. And because of the physical size of it, um, you place it on the record player. You only got 20 minutes aside and, and you, would, you would pick up the, the, the needle and the, and the arm and then just drop it onto the record and, and you'd listen to it for 20 minutes. You wouldn't put your mobile on and think, oh, I'll just catch up with these emails while I'm doing it or, or, or whatever. You'd really listen to it. And, and you'd read about um, the writer. You'd read about um, the people that were singing on it um, and, and everything about it and the people playing on it. it. It became a real part of the passion for you. And, and I think... And also you get the thing where these, these days, if you hear a track, you'll just stream that one track. In those days, you'd listen to the whole album because that's, that, that was the process. And sometimes 
the two or three tracks that you almost bypassed, that you would have bypassed otherwise, become your favorite tracks because they're sleepers. You know, they become things that take a while to really speak to you. And I think that's a shame as well, that, that we lose that context of an album and some of the lesser known songs, which can be the deeper cuts, you know, can, can be the nicest things in, in the end and that can come through after a while. So things have changed a huge amount, um, but that's inevitable. I guess it's inevitable really. Um, and, and you, you know, there still are creative and passionate people out there, I know. And I know I'm sounding like a crotchety old geezer. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I, we agree with you. I mean, there's great, there are some great bands out there, and but at the same time, you're right. There's so much that sounds. It's the same. It's like this. It's the same drum beat. It's the same, you know. Same. And people who are a producer, it's you know, it's you, you push two buttons and yeah, yeah, drum sequence, and I, I don't think that's the same as really a producer producer, but you know. I'm with you, you know, but I'm, I'm glad to see some kids getting into vinyl and vinyl coming back. Shane, yeah, vinyl yeah. because he's he's always uh, t telling us what the latest record <laughs> is right there. <laughs> yep. Thank you. Thank you for putting this out. This <laughs> yes. Are there going to be any more of these, uh, any more oddities and extra records in the future? From well, I mean, we're, we're pretty I, much I exhausted know. with it, aren't we, Cole? Yeah, it seems to have been issued in so many different ways. There are no more. I don't think there are any more tracks, are there? There aren't any forgotten. Not that I know. No. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Well, uh, gents, uh, it's so great to have you on. I mean, uh, Rod and uh, Colin, anything else you'd like to uh, add? No, not really. I, I, just, I just hope everyone will join us on September the 18th. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We do our live uh, broadcast from Abbey Road. And only, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And only to say that, you know, we honestly have missed playing, you know, because that because live playing is something that we really do enjoy a lot, actually. And it, it's been great. The last few years in the States have, have been absolutely great. Um, and things have just grown and grown. I mean, we, we joke amongst ourselves. I mean, ever since we got the, uh, a great management company, which I don't think I certainly have never had one really in my life mm. that have been really superb managers and we've i think we've got them now um and and it meant it's meant that everything has grown and has exploited what we've been able to do and and that's been a fantastic feeling we can't can't wait to get back to that um so you know we, we really look forward to being able to play live and and getting some of that energy out there again and to get the new bloody record finished as well that would be fantastic we're excited about that yeah, we can't wait for that. We'll have to have you back here when that comes out, too. We have to have you back on. Can't wait to see you in September. Yes, that's going to be yeah. cool. September 18th. Yeah, we're, we're going to, uh, we'll link to it. Uh, Abbey Road Studios, the zombies, man, this is going to be so cool. The live stream, we will uh, push it out through our social media channels as well. Fantastic. Cool. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, guys. The first single off Odyssey and Oracle, yeah. November 1967, Care of Cell 44, man. What it's a just a masterpiece, <laughs> you know? It's a masterpiece. I mean, to be, could you imagine being a fly on the wall? And of course, we were sort of, in a sense, you know, with the interview, you're being yeah. in the interview, but 
in that moment back then at Abbey Road, I mean, my lord. That's my the closest lord. I'm ever going to get. I don't yeah. know about you. Oh, that's the closest I'm ever going to get. Yeah, exactly. Talk to people who have been there. Yeah. You know, Annie Haslam, I think, has been there, you know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Hackett yeah. has been there, you know. And so, uh, and, and these gents who have been there, and it's just like, wow. I mean, the stories and the the, the rich human experiences there. I, I Wow. Think about Steve and Annie and other, uh, other people that... We didn't really delve into it, and we also didn't. They were not in the studio at the same time that this other, right? You know, the Beatles, the Beatles were right. That's what makes this so iconic. Exactly. That's what adds even more, like the ultimate intrigue, the ultimate like interest. You know, stealing and, instruments from the Beatles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, bar- I, mean, I say I shouldn't say steal. I say it, just borrowing. Yeah, the pinnacle. I mean, this is the pinnacle of <laughs> of amazing, right? The yeah. ultimate rock and roll story. One of the yeah. ultimate rock and roll stories. Right now, it's currently ranked because um, Rolling Stone redid their, their top 100, 500 records of all time. Mm-hmm. It's number 100 on the original Rolling Stones magazine okay. list. In 2020, the album was ranked 243. Mm. So it got kicked down 143 yeah. spaces. Um, it's also Colin Larkin's all time top 1,000 albums. He is a uh, exceptional writer and such but that would be some list to put together 500 like I, I'd have a hard time with the top 100 because I have so many there's so much I like you know I don't know how you top this record yeah. though right. it's kind of cool that they walked away because right. they knew it was kind of like Seinfeld you went out on top on top right right they were never going to you, you can't be artistically they weren't expecting no. to beat that right no right because they they just put it all out there so like I, I think it was a kind of a it was an amazing move, really. It, right. Artistically, it's just an incredible move. Exactly, yeah. It's it's the pinnacle for them artistically. You're right. right. And and they knew that. And that's that's incredible foresight. Who does that? Nobody. Not many people, right? You know, you yeah. you might you might cash out and then at the top and then yeah. you know retire or something. But in this case, like you you know you're not going to make anything better, and you put your heart and soul into it. Boom. Yeah. Fantastic. So yeah. cool. So many bands I could think of that I wished would have. I know. Right, right. Some, yeah, some that, right, exactly. And they just didn't have that chip in them, you know? Yeah, they just kept going, you yeah. know. But um, it's just a, if you're a record store fiend, if you're a kid that likes to to go to record stores, that, that's how I found out about the record. I found out about through good friends of mine, mm-hmm. a guy named Dave Mann, who's one of the biggest zombie fans I know yeah. in DC. Um, he, uh, he asked some great questions. I actually read some of them to the guys. That's how the album's going to keep going. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were records like that. Yeah. They Velvet ju- Underground they and Nico's one and the yeah. Stooges. And, uh, it's just, Mitch Ryder, you know, some of the... Um, they're so good yeah. that they're never going to mm-hmm. go away. Yeah, especially when you're trying to capture a time period. And they do that. And I just, I love psychedelic. It's just that, you know, I, without the substances, I... I enjoy the music. It's it, it's a special era. It really is. I mean, I just love that stuff. Music is amazing, man. It's just, it's an amazing world. Yeah. Everyone kind of. It's meant borrows. to be shared. Yeah, yeah. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be embraced, and um, and that's a cool thing, you know. Yeah. I knew this guy who played guitar in a Michigan band. Just not, not a big group, but just you know they jammed. I said, man, you're really good. How do you do all that stuff? And he was showing me, you know, some of his stuff, and I said, you don't mind showing me, not that I'll ever be able to do it, you, you're okay just showing me, like, your trademark moves, it's like, he said, M- music is about to be, is about being shared, so yeah. his techniques were about 
you know, at, at that microcosm of a level, you know, his techniques were about being shared because he believed that music is about being, it, it should be shared. And he's right, you know, and, um, you know, you can do your original stuff, but the, the spirit of it, you know, it's going to rub off on people, you know. Yeah. And so a situation like that with the Ramones could, could have happened, but hey, you know, that's the magic of it. Yes, yeah. Odyssey and Oracle is one of those records that um, rides the, 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 the line between psych and pop. Right. And it rides it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's uh, a heck other, of a line. You know, other groups um, like Kaleidoscope, mm -hmm. Tangerine Dream Record, Beatles obviously did it with Such uh, Peppers. Stones did Girl, it. Yeah. They, all these bands were rushing to make records to try to sound like a sound right. that was coming out of that London scene. And these guys were living it, yeah. and they were part of it. And yeah. that's why this record is just such a genuine masterpiece. Mm -hmm. They weren't forcing anything. They were just doing what they were doing. They were the record, doing what yeah. they liked. Yeah. And the songs are so well written. And there's no label telling them you need to do this and you need to do that. You know, it's the, as far as I can tell, it's them. Yeah. Right? It's them saying, you know, this is who we are. This is what we believe. And this is our moment. And it's special. Really special. Yeah. Ho hopefully music will go back to this one day. We can only hope. I mean, some of the art, especially some of the newer artists that we, the next generation that we have on the show, who we love, we we hope that you know by the time they can get big, it's it's for that reason, you know, yeah. absolutely. But check these guys out. Uh, it's September 18, September 2021. I have to do it the British way. 18 September 2021. Abbey Road Studios live concert. Yes, Veeps. Yep, Veeps.com. Yeah. So we're going to leave you uh, the end of the show here with one of the songs I think that tr truly captures the essence of Odyssey and Oracle. Yeah, A Rose for Emily, a perfect departure song. Yeah, Rod wrote the song. Yeah. Colin sang it. Yeah, and, and it, you, you hear the symmetry and how well they work together just on this number alone. Yeah. Everything else, obviously, but especially here. So check it out. The summer is here at last. The sky is overcast and no one brings a rose for Emily. She watches her flowers grow while lovers come and go to give each other roses from her tree. But not a rose for Emily. Emily, Emily, can't you see Welcome Nations with Dave Kinchin.